Welcome to the Mere and Powerful Podcast, where we believe in going far by going together. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Empowerful Podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Brian Pape. Beck Pape. We are here to bring you another great episode in these uh, interesting times that we are living through. Uh, but today's episode is pretty exciting. We sit down with our good friend, uh, Richard Tate, who is just an incredible human, entrepreneur, gentle spirit, kind person, full of empathy. Um, storyteller. Storyteller, extraordinaire. Wise beyond his years. He's a longtime mirror supporter. He's kind of seen you through thick and thin. He has. He's been there through it all, almost from day one. Um, just such a great friend and encourager. Uh, yeah, like you said, storyteller. We cannot wait for you to listen to all the amazing stories that he tells throughout this, from meeting Richard Branson to working at Microsoft in the early years. Yeah, I mean, Richard is the perfect podcast guest because you ask one question and he just he just talks and tells his stories for you know the next 10 minutes it's fantastic <laughs> <mean> hour and a half yeah we could have gone a lot longer with him but he touches on the yearning of the entrepreneurial spirit he talks about um, a sense of calling and clarity from a young age he asks the question how do you lighten and enlighten other people um, the differences between collaboration and competitiveness and um, having empathy for others and finding uh, your superpower. Totally. He is such an optimist. Uh, we had such a great conversation for over an hour, uh, and we really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Richard Tate. Please enjoy. Thank you. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here, and it's a delight to see both of you. Uh, it's so great to see you too. The whole uh, remote podcasting thing, it's its uh, its a close second. We wish we could do this in person and, and maybe we'll have to do a, a 2.0 in the future uh, once we're past COVID. But um, anyway, thanks for taking time to, to connect digitally. It's always a pleasure to see your face. And as we were talking before the show, uh, you have been such a, a source of inspiration um, and compassion and empathy. And, and you just, I don't know, anytime I get Richard Tate popping up on my phone uh, from a text message or a phone call, I'm just, I'm so excited to answer it because you're, you're, you're such a positive, um, you're such a positive human. And, and I just really appreciate over the years as, as a fellow entrepreneur uh, to have somebody who's been there ahead of me uh, encouraging me means so much uh, to myself and to Becca. So thank you for taking time. Thank you for your encouragement. Um, it's been, it's been amazing. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And being an entrepreneur is a journey that's not for the faint of heart. And so <laughs> it takes a community to continue to encourage and benefit from the wisdom of those who's gone before and also to be inspired by up and coming entrepreneurs like yourselves. Um, I often smile when I go and have a chance to listen to or give presentations at universities. And I ask the audience, would any of you like to be an entrepreneur? And it's almost like the donkey in Shrek. They're like, me, me, me. <laughs> and I often think about, wow, do you really know what you're asking for? Because as I mentioned, you know, this takes tenacity. It takes resilience. It takes many of those qualities that you, at night, you have to dig deep to get back up and try harder the next day. And at times like this, never more than ever. And so it's both a privilege and also inspiring for me to be here today and have the chance to talk to you too. Absolutely. The, um, it's interesting cause you, you were, I mean, we were kind of entrepreneurs before it was cool. You were definitely an entrepreneur before it was cool. Um, you know, when we were in college, there was no entrepreneurial courses, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting now colleges have, you know, 
social entrepreneur and entrepreneurship classes. And it's, it's really cool to see that's actually taken hold in the universities, but you are, you are what we call the OG entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) Richard, were you an entrepreneur before that term even existed? Well, I started as a little boy. I'm Scottish. And uh, I was born in a town called Broughty Ferry, which none of you have heard of, but it's a, a little town close to Dundee on the east coast of Scotland. Uh, and my, I was the third kid. I have two older sisters. My mom and dad have uh, been so blessed to have their, role, their involvement in my life. And uh, both of them have been incredible role models for me. And um, ever since I was a little kid, like I, it's funny when I look back, I can remember my parents would take us to Spain or to France. And I could always be found in the marketplace. I loved going to the bazaar, watching the trades happen, the negotiation. Uh, you know, I just have always enjoyed that dynamic. And ever since I was a little boy, you know, I've, I've liked to trade things. I'd like to have a little business. I had a piggy bank very early. <laughs> you know, I've, I've really enjoyed all of that. And, and in Scotland, and much like you guys, when I was growing up, there wasn't this entrepreneurial network. In fact, it was almost frowned upon to, you know, we're a, a herding by nature, a herding culture. Yeah. And so we're used to sticking together. And when someone breaks from the flock, it's a little confusing. And certainly at that time, that was true. Um, one of my first businesses I had, and this is one that I recommend no one do, but uh, <laughs> I actually sold fish door to door. And that has a shelf life issue with it that you can only imagine. (laughs) So that was a business that that I tried. It was pretty rough. That was a a rough one. But I did another business that I started when I was a little boy. I had a paper round. This is when I was about, I don't know, 11 maybe. And in Scotland, as I would deliver the Sunday newspapers, I could smell that they were preparing a very traditional breakfast in the kitchen. And in Scotland, we have a breakfast tradition that's called a bacon butty. And a bacon butty is a breaded roll with fresh bacon and a lot of butter. And it's really delicious. And as I was delivering my newspapers, I could smell this. And my little entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial antenna went off. And I thought to myself, well, what are the margins like on fresh rolls and, and bacon and stuff? And so I built a little bogey, a little trailer for my bicycle. And I added a new category of, of merchandise that I could <laughs> offer my customers. And I started selling fresh rolls and fresh bacon on a Sunday morning. And that, that was a great addition. But I've always had this, always had this entrepreneurial spirit. I've always had this little antenna that I use, this optic or lens that I use of what is the opportunity? What do customers want? I mean, I love, love finding a customer need and thinking about how to address that need. And I love just the smile on their faces when you get it right. And I like also fixing it when they're frowning and you've got it a little bit wrong. So you knew what margin was at age 11. That's pretty impressive. I knew what cash in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> he knew shaking the piggy bank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, started, I started young. Um, and I get a lot of that. I get my optimism from my mom. She's a beautiful, buoyant, joyful human. And I get the business side from my dad. My dad was an incredibly hard worker um, from a pretty humble background, no collegiate um, pursuit for him, but ultimately he ended up running Polaroid. uh, He was the largest employer in our community. And every night I just would come home and my dad would have his papers out on the uh, dining room table and he was just grinding it out. And he instilled in me this work ethic and this resilience that uh, stays with me to this day. And so I was very fortunate to be in that household and I would laugh with my mom 
and I would see the, the business inspiration from my dad. And uh, I, you know, I carry, I talk to them every day. I just love them so much. Yeah. Uh, well, and you are a very social creature as well. Is that right? Yes, I am. So this is a pretty challenge. In fact, I'm so <laughs> delighted to see you two today. <laughs> well, the, well, the reason I ask is, you know, I'm thinking about you in the bazaar as a child and part of it for sure is the business and the exchange and the negotiation and the, you know, just the dynamics of business itself. But then too, it you just strike me as someone who's so invested in people that you probably loved that dynamic as well, the interaction and the I do. And I, again, from a very young age, have been collaborative. I played center, center midfield when I played football. And so, you know, my, the role that I would play was I didn't necessarily have to score the goals, but my job was to thread the pass. My job was to support others. I've always had that kind of mentality. And so that's been a, a real gift. But I also, I read a book when I was very young called The Celestine Prophecy, which was an unusual book for a teenager to read. I think it was a bit of a challenging time. But one of the core threads in that book is about opportunism, is about uh, uh, the, the fleeting, and, and uh, what's the right word? Encounter. You never know what's going to happen. Like I speak to people in elevators. I'm that, I'm that awkward person. <laughs> I sit next to you on a plane. I'd say hi. And I just want to learn from other people's journeys. And so much of my life has been so serendipitous because of being an outgoing person, not overbearing, just inquisitive and curious and willing to listen. And those of those traits have benefited me greatly. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think you and Brian are similar in that way. For well, I'm, sure. I'm curious. It seems like, you know, we, we've noticed this trend through other entrepreneurs and people who are, who are, um, you know, changing the world, whether it's nonprofit or for profit. And there's this similar trait of curiosity. Um, and I'm, I'm always fascinated with where do you, where do you think you picked that up on? Like, you know, from your parents or, or how was it just, was it nature? Was it nurture? Where do you think that came from? My parents were exhausted by the time that I came along. <laughs> And so I think I was left to my own devices a lot. And I've, I think that was the, the beginning of an entrepreneurial pursuit was just this feeling of being curious. I still, I love to learn. I love to find new things. I love to meet new people. It gives me the ignition and the wind under my wings to do what I love to do. And I think my, I think it's probably my, my greatest trait is, is that continued curiosity and that quest for learning and encountering new people and new things. What's your earliest memory as a child? Do you have one that sticks out? Maybe not the very first, but an early uh, memory. Well, my mom and I have the same birthday. Oh, that's so, special. And my dad, I was delivered at home uh, in Bowman Crescent in Bro Broughty Ferry in 1964. Uh, my dad helped the doctor deliver me. I don't remember this moment, but it gives you, <laughs> <laughs> it gives you and a And you came out and said, surprise! <laughs> <laughs> no cake? No yeah. cake. <laughs> And I feel so bad for my mom because I really stole her birthday for a large chunk of her life. Um, but it, it helps describe the relationship that I have with those two human beings. Um, one of my earliest relationships, my family, we were not very well off when I was uh, young. And uh, our summer vacation was to drive from Broughty Ferry to a town called St. Andrews, which was about a 45 minute journey. And we would drive with the caravan behind our car and we'd park the caravan and we'd be there for two weeks. That was our summer vacation. And I have these wonderful memories of walking with my mom on the beach in St. Andrews and holding her hand with my little sandals on and just talking to her and just having that exchange with her. 
And then for her 70th birthday, she and I went back to that same beach and took that same walk. And I have such fond memories of those times. I had a fantastic childhood, really fun, uh, filled with curiosity, amazing friendships. I had really good uh, opportunity to learn. I was very fortunate and I really enjoyed it a lot. That's fantastic. I, I love reflecting on early memories because they're usually so simple, but, but can still be profound. So that's beautiful. Did you, did you have siblings? I can't remember, Richard. Yeah, I have two older sisters, Louise and Jillian. Okay. That's... And you have three older sisters. I'm sure sisters. the two of you have connected on this before, but... All the sisters, yes. You've and have got my, some women in your life. My daughter almost tried to steal my birthday. She still kind of does. Today's actually my birthday, and her birthday was two days ago. Um, so it's like constantly like all the celebration was all CC related, and then we just left it up. We're like, ah, eh, dad will get the, you know, the rest of the cake. You the know, decorations so are <laughs> all, it's all about rainbows this year. Yeah. I've had an amazing day today, and the fact that it's your birthday makes it even more special. So perfect, perfect. I love it. I love it. I know. I, was, I woke up this morning. I was like, "Yes, we're gonna chat to Richard today. It's my birthday. It's gonna be an amazing day. It's sunny. Totally. <laughs> Flagship reopened today, which was really exciting. Wow. Yeah. So we're doing takeout only for now, but yeah, it's amazing. So anyway, I, I share a little bit of the uh, the feeling of your of your mom because <laughs> Cece's. She's going to take over my birthday the rest of my life. But you're okay with that, right? I'm totally okay with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, Richard, I'm curious. How did you go from, um, unless you have more questions about Scotland, I'm always curious about what attracted you to the U.S. and that whole transition because it, um, I mean, you know, you're, you were an entrepreneur in a place that it wasn't normal and then you, you kind of left maybe a, a, in a way um, where it was, you know, people like stayed in their country and they didn't venture out and, and what that whole experience was like for you. Well, one thing that we'll explore as we talk with each other today, in my life, it's always a door that closes that results in another door that opens. And it's been a gift for me to walk through that other door. And it's often led to an opportunity that was even better than the one that I thought was in front of me before. When I was growing up in Scotland as a teenager, um, as I mentioned, my dad ended up uh, having a very significant leadership role in our com community. And uh, one day I told him, uh, he brought me two albums from America. This was very early in my dad's um, going back and forth to the US. And uh, I was probably 13 at this time. And my dad brought me two albums, Boston More Than a Feeling and um, <laughs> yes. Aerosmith Toys in the Attic. <laughs> and when I heard Sweet Emotion for the first time, I'd never heard that kind of music before in my life. My first record was ABC by the Jackson 5. Yeah. So I was more a soul guy. And all of a sudden, my dad introduced me to rock and roll. And when I listened to that Boston album, it just, I just couldn't stop playing it. So I decided that I was going to be a rock drummer. Yes. And when I told my dad, asked me, you know, what do you want to be? What do you want to do with your life? And it sounded like I wanted to be a degenerate. My dad's had a moment <laughs> of absolute parental genius where he brought to me from America, he brought a synthesizer kit where you had to build your own synthesizer. So this was when I was 13 years old. And so at 13 years old, my dad combined my passion for music with an interest in electronics. And so I started programming at 13. I, program, I would program anything. You could put a hairdryer in front of me and I would have given it a shot. So I started <laughs> on something called the BBC Micro, which was way before any of your time, but I started programming that computer. And so this was in 1977. And in 1977, I just fell in love with the potential of what computers held. And I became passionate about it. 
And at the age of 16, I had the chance to go to a university called Stirling University in Scotland. And I was goofing off at school a lot. And in an awkward moment, the letter of application came back and all of my family were at lunch. And I had the letter in front of me and I had a very bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I couldn't open the letter in front of my family. So I went into the bathroom by myself and I opened the letter and I didn't get in. And uh, I emerged from the bathroom to sit back with my family. And there was a super awkward moment of me having to let them know the, that I hadn't got into university that year. And it was so motivating for me because I, I knew I had the potential to do well. And I knew that I was interested in a topic that had a bright future. And so I worked really hard that next year. And I got into a university called Harriet Watt in Edinburgh in Scotland, which is a really geeky engineering school and one of the best for computer science. And when I went there, I just, I loved it. I just loved the environment, I loved the professors, and I loved the topic. But I still had this yearning entrepreneurial spirit inside of me. So my, I was the first in the university's history as a computer science student to submit a business plan for a business as my thesis and graduating as an honor student from computer science. And that business I would still do today. I wrote, I wrote pro, uh, uh, robots, I programmed robots, I pro programmed in a language called Prologue. This was expert systems before AI was cool. And so I wrote, I wrote an expert system for a retailer for them. If you were going in to buy a computer or a printer and you didn't know what you wanted, my system would ask you some questions and then from the inventory that was available would recommend the best system for you. It's, it's still today, buying a home computer is is a tough thing to do. Yeah, it's very relevant. <laughs> but trying to raise money at that time in Scotland for a 20-year-old kid that had no work experience, there was no opportunity to do that. And in a moment of desperation, I sat down with the head of the uh, Scottish Business School, a gentleman called David Cameron, and I explained to him my situation. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, with a human, with your, with your drive, with your desire, you have to go to a country that was founded on a pioneering spirit. And that country is America. And I, even when I say this sentence to you today, to have another human to give you that sense of calling and that clarity of where you need to be. And so I left my family in 1986 and came to go to business school in America. Wow. And when I went to business school, this is a funny story. Growing up as a child, I'm motorcycle crazy. I love motorcycles. And I would watch a show called Chips on TV. In Scotland, we're still on season one. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw Chips and I saw California. And so I was, I, that was the school I wanted to go to. So I applied to Harvard, Dartmouth, uh, Stanford, Penn, and UCLA. And the school I wanted to go to was UCLA because that was close to the beach and away from the rain. And that was the school that I didn't get into. <laughs> and uh, once again in my life, a door closed and another one opened. And I decided when I looked at the schools, if I'd seen Stanford, I would have gone there. I never got the chance to visit before. But Dartmouth had a, an environment that was very familiar to me, smaller class size. Uh, Harvard, I would have had to wait for a year. I got delayed entrance. And so uh, I chose to go to Dartmouth. And uh, that's why I came to, came to America and to go to school there. Was any part of that transition difficult? Mm. It, was it hard to leave your hometown behind? Oh my God, all my friends. I have, I have two brothers that I'm incredibly close to, Alan and Manis. Um, yeah, that was really hard. I can remember my parents leaving me in my dorm room and just this feeling of being so alone. 
And also I had no work experience. I went straight from undergraduate straight to business school. And the guy that I shared a room with was a guy called Jib Martinez, who'd been a Wall Street banker. And finance for him was second nature. And I'd had no experience in finance, no experience in economics. And so the first year of business school was incredibly hard for me. And all of a sudden I found a gift that I had that I didn't know that I had. And that gift was, um, I can tell stories. I can present, I can uh, get people excited about ideas. And then on these team projects, all of a sudden I was the person who was being um, invited to join the team because at some point someone was going to have to pitch. Sure. And that's when I realized that, and the same thing that I realized when I played center mid in, uh, on football, in football, you know, I don't have to be the one who's in front of the goal, but my goal is everyone has a gift. Like there's something about all of us. That's why teams are so fun to play on that everyone has a role to play. And on those important moments when we had to sell the idea, motivate others to follow us, describe a vision, and really capture and synthesize that vision down to something that would resonate and emotionally resonate with someone else, I like doing that. But when I got to graduate from business, from business school, I only wanted to work for one company. From a, the, my dissertation in uh, Harriet Watt, not the business one, I had to do one on computer science, and it was about the introduction of the mouse. This is how old I am. My dissertation <laughs> was about the first year of a mouse being used with a computer. And I kid you not, as I was doing my interviews for my dissertation, I had people running the mouse up their arm. They didn't know that it could, they, they could move it on the desk. They were so confused as to how to actually use a mouse. <laughs> so I only wanted to work for Apple. That was the company that in my heart, I thought I was destined to work for. And at the time they wouldn't interview me because I didn't have a green card. And with that sense of devastation and disappointment, and frankly, a little bit of desperation because I was trying to figure out like, what was I going to do? I was contacted in 1988 by a company called Microsoft. And at this time there was 2,300 people. I'd never seen Seattle. I didn't know what the culture was like, but a woman called Cheryl Newport came to interview me on campus. Um, at Dartmouth. And this woman was amazing. She was so smart. She was um, so challenging, uh, but so compelling that I reached across the desk and I said to her, I have no idea what uh, Seattle's like. I have no idea what Microsoft is like, but if you represent the culture, please let me come. And she said, yes. Wow. And what, what, were, what would she interview you for? What position? So when I came to uh, Seattle to join uh, Microsoft, first of all, I'd bought four suits. My dad had said to me, he'd said to me, if you're <laughs> going to be working at a big company, you're going to need a suit. What did I not need when I got to Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> you needed a rain suit. <laughs> yeah. So I was, uh, my first role at Microsoft was working on an operating system called OS2, which was an event. I had the blessing to be a part of four huge um, transformational waves of computing at my time during Microsoft. I was there for almost 10 years. And the first one was the dawn of client server computing. And so I was working with large corporate accounts and their adoptance of PCs using an operating system called uh, OS2. And I had an extraordinary team. I was a project manager on that particular project. And I actually worked for Cheryl's husband, Peter Newport, who I'm still very good friends with. Uh, he was my first boss and really instilled in me a lot of 
how I operate as a, a leader, uh, a lot of it came from Peter. What's, what sort of things did you learn from him? Well, he had an incredibly high bar. He's a very intense individual, but his intensity is grounded in his quest for amazing work. And so he was able to show me what that bar was. He's also incredibly good at synthesizing issues and identifying what the biggest impact is. So often in clouds of stress or urgency, uh, you can see all of the details, but how do you step back and really have perspective on what is the most impactful um, thing that you can do? And Peter is, he's godly at that. He's incredibly clarifying. He's incredibly articulate about how to approach that problem. And he's also very good at decomposing a problem down into solvable components and then building it back up into a broad solution. He's inspiring. I love him a lot. Wow. And he was, uh, was he bought your boss the whole time at Microsoft or did, did it change? No, he was my first boss. And I also got to work very closely with Steve Ballmer during that cat time. He still to this day calls me Tater. <laughs> that, was like, Come on, Steve. that was Steve's nickname for me. But I had the blessing of working with some of the, the brightest minds at uh, Microsoft at that time. And then after we got done with OS2 and the dawn of Windows NT, I was asked if I would create a corporate kind of liaison team that would work between the technologists and the desires for corporate accounts. It was called CATM, Corporate Account Technical Marketing. And that was a team of about seven people. And it was really the elite. I had an extraordinary team uh, of folks that were working with our large corporate accounts as we transitioned again from OS2 into Windows and Team Corporate Solutions. And that was when I met Satya Nadella. Uh, so as I built this amazing team, uh, people like Jeff Tieper, Bruno Lambert, who's one of my best friends, a woman called Valerie Horvath, uh, just awesome, York Bauer, just amazing people on this team but we had one gap in our team. Again, my job as the leader was to find, I, I still do this to this day, I find generalists, but they have a superpower. Mm. And we had one missing superpower on the team, which was uh, at this time, Sun Microsystems were dominant on uh, financial and investment platforms in New York. And we needed to find somebody that had the superpower to go after that financial community and drive Windows NT as a solution for large investment banks. And lo and behold, I met this 24-year-old kid who was working for Sun Microsystems, and his name was Satya Nadella. Wow. And uh, at that time, I was called an as-appropriate interviewer at Microsoft because I had a technical background and then I had this marketing background. I had the ability to interview across a lot of different disciplines. And when I met Satya for the first time, first of all, he was blindingly smart, like humblingly bright. And everything was a technology problem for, for him. And he was very good at solving those. And you could tell that he was special. It was like meeting someone for the first time and realizing that they had the potential of greatness. I didn't know how much greatness he had, at that time, <laughs> but I knew that he was special. But there was something about him that I could tell that I wanted to explore more about. And as I listened to him answer questions, and he was so good at answering those technical questions and being very deliberate in how he deconstructed and reconstructed the answer, but I felt like he was missing a level of empathy, a level of ability to listen to customers and to dial down the noise and really get at the essence and the emotional need that they might have. And so I asked him this question and he's been very generous because he talks about it in his book, Refresh, about that, this interview question. And I said to him, I said, Satya, if you were to find an abandoned baby in the street, what would you do? 
And my reason for asking him this question was to see what, is, what was his really heartfelt response, what was not his calculated response, but what is his instinct in a situation like that. And he thought for a while, and I think he thought that it was some kind of bubble sort problem that he was having to try to solve. <laughs> and then he said to me, he said, I would call 911. And I paused for a second and I said to him, I said, Satya, the right thing to do is to pick up the baby, to console the baby, to show it love and make it feel safe. And he realized at that time, and he's talked about it very openly in his journey with his own family and with his um, wonderful, wonderful leadership around accessibility at Microsoft and his leadership style is that realization that he had to complement both his acute technical ability with a higher level of empathy. And I think that he's blended those so beautifully now in his life. And uh, I feel privileged to be a part of that. Wow. So you, you, were, uh, you were partially responsible for bringing this incredible mind in, into Microsoft uh, and working with him. And, and If I'd only known that that hire <laughs> resulted in the impact that it would have had, I would have taken it a little easier. <laughs> but you were very I, formative, it sounds like, in, in his, uh, his life and journey in, in empathy. Yeah. He's a, I've, he's a special person. Uh, after we got done with uh, Cadam, uh, we set up a, a value-added reseller channel that was called the Solution Provider Campaign that was a really, really fun journey and was pretty impactful in terms of the adoption of Windows NT. But then I fell in love with CD-ROMs. And if you've ever, I was so blessed to be a part of an amazing organization and people that were working on products like Encarta, Bookshelf, Explorapedia. And so for three years of my life, I had the opportunity to work with those teams and deliver some great products. I'd never seen what a computer could do those things before, like immersive learning, the first time to see video played on a computer. It was really, really exciting. And then I fell in love with the internet in 1992. And this, this was at a time it was a system called Prodigy that was the most popular at that time. And I couldn't stop thinking about what the potential was for uh, the, the internet. And so I was blessed. Microsoft asked me to start thinking about consumer-based internet applications. And so we sold one of the first cars on the internet with CarPoint, one of the first homes on the internet. I was very fortunate to work with Rich Barn and his team on Expedia. Um, there were so many disintermediation and disruptive things that we worked on during that time. And that was really the right parenthesis for me. I, after almost 10 years at Microsoft, I felt that I'd had this opportunity to be a part of these four incredible chapters in their lives and also in my life. And after starting more than 14 businesses for them, I decided to try and be an entrepreneur rather than an entrepreneur. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a couple of important announcements. The first being that today is Brian's birthday. It is. Happy birthday, Brian. Thank you. You don't look a day older than yesterday. <laughs> I Thank promise you, you that. <laughs> I don't know. The gray's coming in thick. Uh, yeah, when I woke up this morning, I looked at my calendar and I was like, ooh, we get to interview Richard Tate on my birthday. So excited. Yeah. Um, what a great conversation. He's such an amazing human. Yeah, he's a stud. Um, he but we are announcing something important uh, pertaining to Mir.com as we well. Are. Yeah, personalization is now available on Mir.com for our drinking vessels. Yeah, this is super cool. It's a laser etch treatment. So... When you personalize your bottle, it goes off to our printer and they etch away at the powder coat. That's right. Leaving the stainless steel That's right. finish. Exactly. So we have been custom experts in bulk for amazing customers all over the world, but now we're bringing that 
individually to you. So you can do one, you can do two, you can do 20. Um, but really the sky's the limit. So you can put your initials on there. You can put a name, you can put a, uh, a statement, um, you know, mm-hmm. whatever's meaningful to you. A hashtag, perhaps. A hashtag. You could just put a hashtag on there if you wanted to. We're also entering the season of dads and grads. We are. So keep those folks in mind. Very for good personalization. gifts. Yeah. 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 Very thoughtful gifts. So taking a great product and elevating it and making it very personal. So personalization is available on mirror.com. Simply go onto the product page and you will see the personalization button and uh, have at it. So we hope you enjoy the personalization on mirror.com. And let us know what you think. Yeah. So without further ado, back to our conversation with Richard. Yeah. And then go ahead. I was going to ask just to back up a little bit what your first impressions of Seattle uh, were as a city and how you adapted and um, even where you first lived in in Seattle. Well, first of all, I love this city and I love the city for two reasons. First of all, it's on exactly the same latitude as Helensburg, Scotland, which was the town that we moved to uh, when my dad got his new job. And um, so if you look at the topology, if you look at the, uh, even the, the, the um, greenness of Seattle, the, the glow of this wonderful emerald, emerald city, it's very familiar to me. And uh, I've always grown up close to water. And so there's just something very settling about this environment for me. And I, I just love the context of Seattle. So that's one thing just in terms of its location. And then is the pioneering spirit of the people. Uh, Brian mentioned this at the, uh, the beginning of just this wonderful sense of community around a pioneering spirit. And I think an entrepreneur, really going back to the early days, the, this, the early settlers were the first entrepreneurs we'd, ever, we'd seen. And, you know, I, I feel such a kinship with the people of Seattle. I don't really feel there's this competitive nature. It's much more collaborative and supportive. I think, Brian, you and my relationship is an example of that, of where you just feel this wonderful level of support. And I, I know for sure in the city, if I was ever struggling with something, there's someone in Seattle that would have coffee with me and help me through it and benefit from their wisdom and their journey and give me some advice. If not advice, just a hug to say, don't worry, this will get better. Um, Absolutely. And so I, I, my first impressions, I must admit, on the flight to Seattle, the in-flight magazine had four pages on Sedona, Arizona. And I was thinking, that looks pretty good. <laughs> But then from the moment that I landed at SeaTac and breathed the air, I knew that this was the place for me. Mm. And I've, I have lived here now for more than half my life. I'm more a Seattleite than I am a Glaswegian. Although I still, when I go home, my heart beats differently when I get off at Glasgow Airport. Um, but I really can't think of another city in America that I would rather live in. Mm. And how often do you go back? Uh, well, I go back very frequently now. So I go back uh, once a quarter. My parents are in their 80s and um, I can't go back often enough to tell them I love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, um, yeah, the, I, would, I would echo the feeling of Seattle is, is somewhat remarkable. And, and, and we, we used to have an office in Boise, a small satellite office for, for sales. Um, and we've kind of gone remote now with COVID and whatnot. But um, you know, we've always kind of flirted with the idea of, you know, would we ever live somewhere else in the U.S. or the world? And, and you know, we have these ideas of living somewhere for a month and experiencing it. But ultimately, when we kind of sit down and we think about our business and how we want to interact with people, there's so much greatness in Seattle and so many incredible entrepreneurs and large businesses and philanthropy and this beautiful mix. And not that other cities don't have this, but there's, you know, Silicon Valley, very tech focused, right? And, and yes, there are other businesses there. But in Seattle, you have these 
giant companies, you have these small companies, you have these nonprofits, you have these, I mean, really a blend of technologists and scientists and it's, and the university and it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's so special. And, and, and obviously when you live here, you think that, um, but I've just, I don't know, I've, I've, I feel like I've been fortunate enough to come here and since 2003 and, and experience some of that growth. And for you, I mean, from, from the eighties, it must be, um, someone incredible to have seen all of that growth and, and development from a, from a city's perspective. And I think Richard, you put into words how you have felt for a long time about Seattle, that it is more collaborative than competitive it it just has that vibe about it and anytime we discuss possibly moving back to Boise where Brian grew up or somewhere else with a different climate because we get tired of the rain you know we just can't we just can't leave it we can't get enough of it Barcelona's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah Mark I think Mark for Mark uh Barros will get into him a little bit but he for thoroughly enjoyed his 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 time there um the culture there is, is quite incredible. Um, well, Richard, I'm curious, we know the great story of cranium and, and, um, it's such an incredible game. Our, our daughter loves it. Um, she's learning how to play it, but what, what was that trend transition? Like, you know, it probably wasn't just, you woke up one day and, and left Microsoft and started something. What, what was that? Hey, uh, you know, I think my time is done here. I want to try something new. I mean, we, I know you as a very creative person, um, but what was that journey like for you to, to leave a, uh, an emerging corporation and, and, and go off on your own? I think Cranium found me and I didn't find Cranium. Mm. Uh, this came to me at an incredibly dark moment in my life. Uh, you don't really prepare yourself when you leave an organization like Microsoft of how much social currency comes from having a business card with a corporation's name on it. When I was calling from Richard Tate from Microsoft, pretty much everyone would call me back. When you leave there and all your card says is Richard, then it's a very humbling and um, uh, vulnerable moment. And people were coming up to me all the time. You know, I, am, I would like to think that I'm pretty creative and people would come up to me all the time and say, Richard, what are, you, what are you working on? What do you have? And I had nothing. And I was depressed. I was spending the time in my basement. It was a struggle for me to get dressed. Uh, it was a pretty dark time in my life. And we decided to shake things off and go and spend some time in New York. And we ended up, I've got very good friends in my life, Dan and Maggie Katz. And we were uh, on a weekend trip with Dan and Maggie. This was in the Hamptons. It was a rainy weekend. We'd flick through the newspaper. We'd read a book. And we were just sitting there looking at each other, these four humans looking at each other going, okay, what are we going to do now? And there are a few moments, there's few words in the English language that can make me like jump for joy. And one of those words is the word Pictionary. I've never been beaten at Pictionary. I challenge <laughs> anyone here to a game of Pictionary. Oh, we should have like set that up in, in studio and done Pictionary over Zoom. That would oh, have been that'd be good. <laughs> You're gonna draw in a straight line and I would be like, I'm Rushmore! <laughs> <laughs> and so sure enough, with Dan and Maggie on that Sunday morning, uh, we crushed them at Pictionary. And of course, immediately, they were compelled to challenge us to a game of Scrabble, which is a game that can send shivers down my spine because I'm terrible at Scrabble. I'm the, I'm the worst in the world at Scrabble. And so Dan and, Dan and Maggie are amazing. They keep their scores on the fridge. And so they played us at Scrabble and completely crushed us at Scrabble. And as I sat there, my little antenna went off again. And I thought, why isn't there a game that has something in it for everyone? Why isn't there a game that gives everyone that moment to shine? And I, was, I couldn't stop thinking about that concept. And on the plane home, a classic napkin story, I'm on the plane 
and I start drawing on the napkin, you know, activities. What if you had a game that had performing activities in it? What if you had a game that had trivia challenges in it? What it, it was just looking at the precedents that we'd seen that had been successful over time. And this is exactly how we turned out to develop the game. But this was just an idea. It was just a concept. It was a napkin. I had no idea that we would sell 40 million games in 22 countries. No idea that we would win Game of the Year more consecutively than anyone has ever done. No idea that we would delight almost half a billion people throughout the world by their creating experiences. None of that was evident to me that time. All that was evident was when somebody came up and asked me, do you have an idea? All I had was this napkin. And so uh, I contacted my buddy, Wit, uh, who I'd Wit Alexander, uh, who I worked with very closely on Encarta and the, and the World Atlas at Microsoft. And I said to him, I said, would you like to join me in making a, a game? Because I knew, again, in this ability, I know what I'm good at and I know what I suck at. And so I've got a, a, a very uh, transparent ability to think about, okay, what's it going to take to pull this off? And I knew I couldn't do it without wit because wit is a, a maker. Like he loves to make things mm -hmm. and I love to think about things. And so the combination of our two skills were required to get the thing going. And so I approached Whit. He said, well, you're going to have to call my dad and tell him that I'm quitting Microsoft to make a game. <laughs> I'd already talked to my dad about it. It didn't go down very well. And so I, uh, uh, Whit and I started writing cards. Whit did an amazing piece of work. He was very instrumental in the beginning because he went to the Seattle Library and he studied historical precedents of activities that humans have loved to do as parlor games going back almost 100 years. And he found precedents to things like Pictionary of where households would have an artist in grand households. They'd have an artist painting and periodically during the meal, people would migrate into another room to try and guess what the artist is painting. So humans love progressive reveal. This has been true for many, many generations. And so we started to study those play dynamics that were so, so ingrained in human psyche and society. And we knew that if we had those activities in the game, that it was destined to, for success. And so him and I, we'd write questions in my house. Whit and I wrote for this game, this is, I have a copy here. This is one of the very first copies of, of Cranium ever made. Uh, for that game, Whit and I wrote all the content. Just, just the two of you. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on his inkjet printer in my living room, uh, going to Kinko's at night. We'd be doing play tests in people's homes, hiding behind their couches, watching them play, learning, back into Kinko's. One thing that was instrumental and, and might be interesting is one of the first play tests we did, we, well, we, were, we knew we had to get beyond friends and family to get really good feedback. And so in one of the first play tests that we did, we invited six or eight of the hardest core program managers from Microsoft that we knew. And they came to play Cranium in my dining room in Seattle. And this was a situation like, if you were ever to have a baby and you held it up and people just told you it was ugly, this was exactly <laughs> what happened to us because they were so precise uh, a little abusive, but so direct with their feedback. I'm sure it saved Whit and I at least a year in product development time because the, their feedback was so acute and deliberate and delivered with such clarity. And we were just writing down the things that they experienced. And we were able to respond to that very, very quickly. So this whole concept of iterative design that we learned at Microsoft and how we created software 
we just apply that same dynamic and that same um, uh, uh, development process to actually writing the game. So we got Cranium done from start to finish in six months. Wow. Uh, from concept to in market in six months. What was, a, what was a specific uh, piece of feedback that they gave you at the time? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> Selling therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, there was a couple of things. I mean, we, at the time, we, were actually, we actually had a punitive play dynamic. If you've got a question wrong, then we sent you on a meandering longer path. And we very quickly realized through their feedback that humans want to be rewarded. They want to be rewarded and celebrated and then take the shorter path because of what had, ha what had, what had happened. And, that was a, and this, this was a board that I made in PowerPoint and we laminated it, Kinko's, and waited <laughs> print the cards. This thing for sure cost us less than $15 in, to make the prototype. For, so for anyone who's listening and they've found themselves, they've had an idea, but they've, they're struggling with how to take it to the next step, make a prototype and start getting feedback. And it can be incredibly low fidelity. I'm serious. We printed, we cut. I remember this. Whit had an exacto knife. We were cutting the cards in his in in his home, and you know that's how we built the prototype. But it, I'm, it cost us for sure less than fifteen bucks. So one was around play dynamic. They gave us a lot of feedback on activities. Uh, Whit, if he's listening, will love that I tell this story. The clay, <laughs> which became one of our signature activities, um, was something that I was not in favor of including. I thought it was childish and. I, I didn't think it was additive to the play dynamic. And Whit was such an advocate for that. And every play test, he would keep saying, you know, you've got to, you're not listening hard enough, you're not listening hard enough. And then I, I remember specifically, this wasn't with the Microsoft group, this was in, with another group, where there was a gentleman, he was probably in his early 40s, and they were playing this game, and Whit and I were hiding behind the couch. And then he got a sculpture aid, and he went into the clay, and I saw his eyes completely transformed from this... 40-year-old guy to a four-year-old and the sense of this delight and discovery and curiosity as he started to sculpt the golf course. And I saw Whit with such glee just looking at me behind the <laughs> cards, just be like, do you see what's happening here? Do you see it? And that's when we knew that the, the, uh, the, the clay was going to be in the product. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the most memorable pieces to it, I think. I was always a star performer. And then what was the word? What was the word? word worm or something Wordworm. word worm yeah. i was good at word worm too you would be good at word worm. but you were you're good you're better at the Love other the clay, things the dry the blind drawing that was one word worm actually led to one of my favorite moments uh we were very fortunate we sold a million games with no advertising we had this community of customers who called themselves craniacs and they were incredibly loyal and they loved celebrating with their families and i would get these amazing letters i read every piece of uh customer email that we got and all of the letters and it was so uh heartwarming for me but also inspiring of we can do more for our craniacs and then we started to get proposed uh proposals we started to have people that were proposing during the game and we got contacted by this young couple huge craniacs and uh this young man was saying to us that he wanted to propose to his girlfriend at the time during a game of cranium and was there something that we could do for them and i was so taken by this opportunity that I called him up and I started asking him questions about their journey together. And so sure enough, we made Cranium cards that celebrated their life together. And then during the game of Cranium, uh, she went to Kula Zelpas, which was one of the wordworm activities with missing letters. 
that was, uh, and he dropped to one knee and presented her with the ring. And it was, will you marry me with letters missing uh, during his alphas. And we had many moments like that. We had the cranium themed weddings. It was really an extraordinary, extraordinary time. That's but I've got a couple of stories, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to share for oh, people. Oh, yeah. Just around the tenacity of entrepreneurship. And, and Cranium, it was an amazing journey, but there was many stumbles along the way. There was, uh, there was a lot of things that we had to o- overcome. And one of the first things was Whit and I missed Toy Fair. If you're making a game, Toy Fair is a good idea to just to check it out. And so in, in February, uh, we had missed Toy Fair. And so when we started presenting our game to toy retailers, they had no shelf space left. And so again, in a moment of darkness, which often results in the light and the opportunity for some creativity, Whit and I were sitting in a Starbucks store lamenting about what idiots we were. And we looked up and we saw all of the people who had loved our games or similar people were standing in line at Starbucks. We called them dating yupsters at the time. And sure enough, they were all standing in the store. And so I turned to Whit and in this disruptive thought, I said to him, Whit, let's take our games to where our customers are and not where games are sold. Mm. Let's take our games to where our customers are and not where games are sold. Wow. And that was incredibly disruptive to our approach, but also incredibly disruptive to the industry because we, uh, we identified Amazon.com, we identified Barnes & Noble, we identified Starbucks, uh, Virgin, all of these places that never sold games before, but that's where our customers were. And so then we went after trying to get into those points of distribution. And that was incredibly difficult. It took a lot of creativity. Amazon, were, they were incredibly busy. You know, this was yeah. uh, 1996, 1997. And uh, they were right around the corner. Our first office was in um, Third and Union, in uh, Third and Pike in Seattle. And they were, their offices were right around the corner. And I was trying to get their attention. It was click, 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 click every time we called. So we came up with the idea of organizing play tests with friends of the buyers. They were all in Seattle. So we find out who their friends were. And then we started doing play tests with their friends so that they would go into work the next morning and they'd be talking it up about this amazing game they played. Yes. How on earth are you identifying their friends? This was pre-social media. So it yeah. took a lot of, do you know who, do you know this person, do you know that person? But we figured it out. And that was just the creativity and tenacity that comes with being an entrepreneur. I yeah. love that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that you you have to get to that level of of thinking creatively or getting in front of the buyer or, or you know, doing doing things like that. And and that's why that's why I think I love hanging out with entrepreneurs so much because that 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 creativity to find a path, to find a way to to get in the place that you're trying to to get to. And you're gonna hit hurdles, you're gonna run into doors, but I love hearing stories about where people find a different way to get into a retailer or, you know, navigate a way around it and, and, and get super, super creative. Well, and your end goal makes so much sense. You're just trying to meet the customer where they already are. Which is brilliant. The, I've uh, had so, so many times in my life where I've been given a sentence or a phrase that has stayed with me, but has also been so incredibly clarifying. Late in my career at Cranium, I was on the uh, the bored of the toy industry. And I'd been on the road for a couple of weeks or, and I just wanted to get home. I just wanted to see the kids. This was in Houston. And as I was walking through the lobby of the hotel I was staying in, I was so tired. All I wanted to do was go to sleep on the journey to the airport. And I grabbed the USA Today that was in the lobby. And as I got to the, the courtyard for the hotel, there was an African-American gentleman, stocky gentleman, 
who was waiting to take someone to the airport. And I saw my name in the back window of the, uh, the car or the card that he was holding. He was adjusting his cufflinks and the knot in his tie, getting ready for the mission that he had for that day, which was to take me to the airport. And as I got into the back seat of the car, I started, my head started to tilt back and he got into the driver's seat and my head nodded forward and his ebony eyes met my Scottish blue eyes. And we had this moment of whether we were going to say something to each other or not. And I decided that I would. And so I asked him, how's your day? And he said to me, do you want me to be honest? And I said, of course. And he said, well, it's been a little tough. He said, he said, I've got three little kids and breakfast was really hard. There's fruit loops everywhere. And I said, you know, I've got three little kids. I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. And so we started to begin this journey together. And this gentleman started to explain his childhood of growing up in the South and overcoming many dealing with racism and his, he wasn't able to get a full education. And the way that he escaped was to get into the army and he'd gone in deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and this was just unfolding in front of me. It was like David Lynch movie. The, the lines in the road were going past so slowly as this gentleman shared with me this journey that was filled with so many chances to, to not get back up. And he'd demonstrated so much resilience in his life. He'd come back to America and his wife at that time had left him with another guy and taken his kids out of state. And he'd fortunately fallen in love with this other woman who had these three little kids that he was trying to establish himself as the father in their household. And when we got to the airport, my heart was so full from listening to this gentleman's story. And he walked around the car and put this strong hand in front of me to pull me out the back seat of the car. And as we got out again, our eyes met again. And he looked at me and he said to me, he said, Richard, remember in life, it's not how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get back up. Wow. It's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And I watched the taillights of his car start to leave the airport. And I didn't want him to leave. I wanted, I wanted 20 more minutes. I wanted an hour more of just listening to this journey and this humanity that he shared with me and realizing that in my life, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. And I've kept that with me in so many different aspects of my life. Um, but it's been a very powerful gift, that phrase. Wow, that's that's an incredible story, Richard. There you go with your storytelling, <clears throat> making me making me tear up over here. But it's so it's so true. It is so true, and we have a choice every time we get knocked down. You can choose to stay down, or you can fight to get back up. That's true. the um, The piece that's interesting to me with 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 that, um, you know, with with so many things that that you know we've shared about your life, Richard, and you know, the part that's interesting to me is that cranium was, it, it seems so much like a reflection about how you lead teams is that you find like this game is a, is a general game, right? But you totally leaned into the superpowers that, that, you know, generalists are great because you can cross function, you can do all these things, but then that everybody has these unique gifts. And you see that form with teams where somebody's like, I'm the presenter, I'm the finance, I'm the wordsmith, I'm the, I'm the thing. And that's, that's such a brilliant unlock for games because it's typically, you know, monopolies around finance and deals and, these other games are around these specific, very specific things. And you found this way to bring people together at all at the table and then use people's gifts um, and their superpowers. I think that's an amazing, amazing unlock. And then you're celebrating each other and not not just your own strengths, but you're leaning into the strengths of others and, and celebrating in those differences. I love that game. I think we should pull it out tonight. <laughs> <We should. laughs> I think it's an incredibly acute observation 
And many times in history, games have come along, like Monopoly came along during the Depression when people didn't have money and they wanted to feel a sense of power. Mm. And we invented Cranium. I don't think this was part of the inspiration, but this was at the dawn of um, social media and computers, and we were starting to not spend as much time together. And so to come along with an opportunity that brought us all together, that gave us the chance to shine in front of our friends and family, celebrated our gifts. I think a lot, as is the case with many things, timing was very, 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 very important. But there's a couple of other things about the Cranium experience that I'd love to share uh, with you if we still yeah. have time. Yeah, absolutely. When you create a brand, like my, my life is filled with creating brands. I just love doing it. And the essence and soul, when you declare that your, your reason for being is to give everyone the chance to shine, which was the golden thread that we wove through every experience that we created to fulfill on that promise, that emotional promise that you're making with your customers, we're going to give everyone the chance to shine. When you've made that emotional promise, like how do you ensure that you deliver on that promise every single time? And we had um, amazing people. Whit and I often get the credit for printing, but the credit really goes to the teams of people that we had working for us. And we had two extraordinary women, Catherine Fisher and Jill Waller. And uh, they, they created this editorial framework for us that, that showed us how with everything, with the activity and the combination with the editorial, how do you lighten and enlighten people's lives? That was the thread. Everything had to go through the lens of lighten and enlighten. So we, we stayed, everything we, had, we did had to be enriching, but you had to laugh. Yeah. So we, had, we found this incredible harmony between those two words that ensured that with every touch point, our brand delivered on that emotional promise. And to deconstruct a brand, to really boil it down to its essence, and then ensure that everyone understands what that means. We had another framework, which was called CHIF, clever, high quality, innovative, friendly, and fun. And everything that we did had to be CHIF. And each of those words were chosen so deliberately. We chose clever versus smart because clever had a, was more approachable, had a little bit of naughtiness to it, and was more fun. And so CHIF became this mantra that we all knew when something was CHIF enough and it couldn't leave our door until it was chiff. And so those two frameworks, lighten and enlighten from an editorial and experience based, and then chiff just from a product quality and, um, uh, and knowing when it's right to let it go. Because often with entrepreneurs, we'll tinker with things for everything, <laughs> for, forever. But it, once you knew that it was chiff and we'd reached that bar, then it was ready to share with the public. It was, it's clever. What was the H? Clever, high quality, innovative, friendly, and fun. Huh, that's cool. And each of them had, so friendly was all about uh, rules. Like how quickly could you get up and play? And we had very d distinct and cl clear parameters around what each of those things meant. And so if you weren't up and playing within five, 10 minutes, then people lose interest. And you start, the members of the family who don't have a good attention span, you start losing them to other activities. So we knew that the rules had to be simple, they had to be very quick to share and we had to get people playing as quickly as possible. Wow. That's, um, how did that framework come about? Like, was it, was it organic? Was it, did you sit down intentionally map that out? Did it? Well, Whit and I thought a lot about replicability. We thought a lot about how do you ensure brand consistency from experience to experience. We needed to instill, we were hiring amazing people that had fantastic skill sets, but we had to help them understand how to deliver on the brand promise 
And so by creating frameworks, it allowed them to have more of a playbook that they could replicate uh, and ensure that the hard work and all of the amazing work that they were doing was laddering up to that brand promise. And so it was, it was about agility or about replicability, um, clarity of brand vision. I mean, you guys do an amazing job, Amir. I'm, I'm, I've sent you many, many notes <laughs> and comments when I've discovered a new Mir product and how I just love it and how it's so consistent and on brand. And I'm so proud to carry the mug oh, and, and how it elevates my own feeling about myself because I feel it's aspirational. And I think you have, you have to be very deliberate about all of those mm. things. And I've been fortunate. You know, I've had the chance to work with some of the world's greatest brand masters and you learn they, you know, they're using the same tools and techniques as, as we did at Crane. Absolutely. So your, your position into Starbucks, I'm always curious, how, how does it go from we're in Starbucks, we should sell here to getting it on the shelf? How did that, how did that come about to, you know, who did you, you're like, who do we call the, the, the drinkware merchandiser or, you know, how'd that come about? It was the this friends is... of the, of the buyers, right? That, you were... <laughs> that was Amazon, no, wasn't it? That was Amazon. Oh, that was Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We did a couple of really creative things. I'll come back to the uh, Starbucks one, but there's a, a gentleman in town, his name's Adam Tratt, and he was our first employee at Crane. He's a fantastic guy. He's got a really buoyant personality and he's very engaging. And one day he came to me, he knew that, we, that I wanted to launch in the UK with Richard Branson and Virgin, because I'd grown up, he was my hero as I grew up in Britain. And one day Adam came running back to me and he burst into my office and said, dude, dude, you gotta go to um, Borders Books now. And I said, why, what's going on? He said, Richard Branson signing his autobiography. Go, go, go. And he shoved the game under my arm and pushed me out. <laughs> and I went over to Borders Books on 4th Avenue. Yeah, uh, yeah, 3rd Avenue, 4th Avenue in Seattle. And sure enough, there was Richard Branson and his charismatic skin glow and his hair and just his personality. <laughs> And I'm standing in line with my little game cranium under my arm, so nervous to meet my hero. And, but I'd read his autobiography. I knew he loved games. Um, so I knew I had a little bit of an in. Uh, but when I got up in front of him, you know, I made a little bit of a joke about my name's Richard, his name's Richard. But he said his eyes were drawn immediately to this brightly colored box that was under my arm. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's our new game, cranium. And he said, you know, I love games. And I said, yes, I do. And I brought, brought this one to, for you to play with your group on the plane home. And he said, do you have a launch partner in the UK? And I said, no, sir, I want to launch with you. And uh, sure enough, four days later, I got a phone call. He, he wants to see us in London. And, you know, that Christmas we were launching with Virgin in, uh, in London. And that's a great story, again, of just that mm. opportunistic tenacity and it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there. And in that. he could have said no. And oh. that would have been devastating for me. It would have been another opportunity to pick myself back up. But if I hadn't gone there, if Adam hadn't disrupted what I was doing and pushed me with such conviction to go and do this, and if I hadn't done it, we would never have launched with, with Virgin. Yeah, uh, yeah. With Barnes & Noble, I flew to New York, was in the lobby. The woman came out to meet me and she said, what's that? I said, it's my game cranium. She said, we don't sell games, we sell books. And so she was about to pack me up and send me off. And I looked in the hallway. There was two women standing at the water cooler. 
there was me, there was her, that gave us four. How many people does it take to play cream? Four. So I convinced the two people, the two women from the water cooler to come in and play us. And then 15 minutes later, we were in 110 Barnes & Noble store. Uh, yeah, Barnes & Noble store. Uh, Starbucks, you know, I, I have to give a lot of the credit to a gentleman called Dan Levitan, who runs Maveron in, uh, in Seattle. Uh, earlier before, right at the beginning of knowing about cranium, uh, we went to climb Mount Kilimanjaro to raise money for care. And I was very fortunate on that climb to meet a gentleman, uh, Dan Levitan and his two brothers who were there climbing Mount Kilimanjaro at the same time. And Dan and I became friends on that journey. We would hang back and he was moving to New York, from New York to Seattle and I was leaving Microsoft and getting ready to do something else. Or I'd left and was getting ready, for trying to figure out what I was going to do. And he said to me, you know, what, what are you working on? And I was like, uh, uh, well, I've got the game. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, look, if I've got a friend who's pretty good at consumer products, if, you would, if you'd like to meet him, uh, let me know. And I said, well, who is it? And he said, his name's Howard Schultz. And I was like, well, that would be, I'd love to know. <laughs> sure. I'd actually, actually met Howard. He did, Howard doesn't remember this, but I'd met him four or five years ago. He came, uh, we had a project called Sidewalk at Microsoft. It was uh, kind of Yelp before Yelp. And I wanted to put Sidewalk um, terminals into Starbucks stores. Starbucks at this time probably had about 200, 250 stores. And Howard came to meet with us by himself with a simple notebook and a pencil. And I had like 15 in my team, huge foreheads, PowerPoint, ready to go. And we went through the whole thing. And, and Howard was so genteel, put his pencil down and said that he appreciated our time and all of our enthusiasm. But he was at a different journey and he was creating a third place, a place of respite. And at that time, he didn't see a role for technology. And I can remember watching him walk back into the parking lot, get into his car. And I watched him drive off. And I saw a human being that had such clarity and conviction in what he wanted to bring to the world. And I hoped that one day I'd have the chance to work with him. And then fast forward, uh, Dan made the offer of introducing us. But I knew that just getting to Howard wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, I knew that I had to find someone within the organization so that we'd start building from it wouldn't be just become a pet project. It was something that was really past the muster of being worthy of a Starbucks product. And we found a gentleman called David Brewster, who'd been responsible for introducing Hear Music uh, to Starbucks stores at that time. And he was a courageous individual, fantastic personality, and he was willing to give us some light inside the Starbucks building and became an advocate for us. And so that's how we made our way. I mean, Howard helped. We had an amazing meeting with Howard. I haven't told the story very often, but uh, Whit and I went to meet with him. He said he'd give us, give us some feedback. And I, he, we were getting the game out. I, I was so nervous and so enthusiastic. I'm just gibbery jabbering, you know, introducing the game to him. And he was like, Richard, Richard, stop, stop. He said, if, if this game was a human being, at this time, the tagline for the game, it wasn't give everyone a chance to shine. It was the game for your whole brain. That was the original tagline for the game. And so uh, Howard asked me, he said, Richard, Richard, if this game was a, a person, who would this person be? And I blurted out, it would be Bill, Bill Gates. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, and he, he really quietened the, the room down. And he said to me, Richard, you are creating a moment for family connections. You're creating a moment that will last through family gatherings for years to come. If you see your father impersonating Elvis, this will be a story that will be told and reflected on amongst families and friendships. You're creating a moment of togetherness. 
And he said it to me with such warmth and such clarity. That was the beginning of giving everyone the chance to shine. Gwit and I walked out that room and we pivoted very quickly. And we realized that we were kind of replicate. It's interesting you made the observation that the game is a reflection of my personality, which I really think it is, or collectively we created it. But the clarity that Howard gave us that it was about these moments and memories that were created, which is so true. Yeah. I mean, how many times has somebody said, oh, dude, when I saw you sculpt that golf course, man. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was right. And so, yeah, I've been very fortunate to benefit from the wisdom of, of some of those folks in my life. Wow, that's that's incredible. I've only um, Beck and I met Howard once. We um, people who follow the brand like yourself know that we used to make bicycles back in the day. And uh, when when uh, Starbucks was opening up their roastery, uh, their first roastery on Capitol Hill, um, like three, two or three months before it opened, Howard had asked. He said, "Hey, I, I want a bicycle in the roastery." And so the merchandisers called all the bike brands. They're like, "It's impossible. You, you can't have a bike, a custom Starbucks bike, for launch in, in three months from now." And so. Um, I, I, I can't remember. Do you, do you know Linda Rands? She used to work on the online side. I don't know if you cr yeah, cross yeah, yeah, else. So, so yeah. Linda is a good friend of ours. She called us up and, and, and we came into a meeting with them and they said, Hey, we know you make bicycles, whatever you can do to help make this possible would be amazing. Cause it, there's this ask. And so I had this idea. I was like, well, how many, and everybody else had said no. And I said, how many, how many do you need for launch? They're like, well, we only need like a handful, but you know, maybe at most 20 bikes. And in my head, the next day we were going to China and I was like, oh yeah, I think we can do this. And so the idea was let's put it through the sample room versus the full assembly line. And so what we did was we produced 20 bikes through the sample room, air freighted them over, grabbed parts from local distributors, put the bikes together, delivered it like the day before they opened and launched. And we were at the launch party there. I, were you, I can't remember, were you at the launch party? There. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we went up to Howard and just I just introduced uh, our, myself and Rebecca was there and we just said, hey, you know, we heard that you you asked to have a bicycle and you know we started this brand called mirror and we shared the passion for it it was just he was so um i've, I've met we've met many people who are sometimes dismissive and he was so genuinely interested in our journey and the product that we had made for them it was it was such a unique experience and it sounds similar to to the experience you had in his office or, or at their headquarters so yep and then he he also i know we're getting short on time he also gave me the introduction to, or not the introduction, but the opportunity for the, the most recent chapter that I've had in my life. And yes. so when uh, Kevin Johnson was getting ready to take over from Howard, uh, Howard asked if I'd come in and help Kevin get ready for, the, for that journey. And I've known Kevin for a very long time. We've been friends for a very long time. But this was an invitation to create a relationship that was so special and unique because for a year I got to work with Kevin almost like going into boxing camp with another human being as we worked on his leadership philosophy. So he, he, I was the first entrepreneur in residence at Starbucks, but most importantly for in that first year, I was really a companion for him as he got ready to, to take over as CEO. So it was, a, it was an, an amazing moment to go through the vulnerability, the confidence, the conviction, all of those emotions as the key got passed and Kevin got the chance to be the CEO and be the right CEO for, for that time. And for me to be by his side was an incredible honor and privilege. And then I transitioned into finding innovation for Starbucks and working with amazing leaders throughout many different disciplines at Starbucks and finding such great technology or uh, new food products, et cetera, and just introducing them to the Starbucks of so things that they, the unexpected discoveries that they may not have, have happened. And that job was really, really fun. But I could tell, you know, I was a little bit of a luxury at Starbucks at that time. And so I wrote uh, to Kevin, the Jerry Maguire self-sacrificing memo 
and said, look, the right thing to do might be to set up an external investment fund and um, you know, run that as an opportunity and a way to find innovation and bring it back to Starbucks when it was scale appropriate. Unfortunately for me, he responded uh, pretty quickly and said that he had no interest in, in creating a fund, but if I could find the right partner for Starbucks, he would support me in, in that endeavor, which was an incredible demonstration of trust and confidence. And as co of course, as an entrepreneur, that was a door that opened that I leapt through and went on the journey to find the right partner for Starbucks. And at this time, Kevin had asked me to go down and look at a company called Itza in San Francisco, which was a high-tech, uh, cubby-based, cubicle-based uh, restaurant where there was no people serving. You went in, it was very digital, and it was amazing technology, very, very smart team. And I was in the room with Tim, who was the CEO at the time, and uh, his, his group of people. And there was another bald guy in the room. And he was asking incredible questions, very intelligent, very insightful. But most importantly, he had his sleeves rolled up. He was conducting himself as an operator. Um, he was humble, but yet also very committed in his responses and the advice that he was giving them. And I was just so struck by this gentleman's character, the values that he was demonstrating, the way that he was supporting the entrepreneur and his team. I just, I wanted to know who was this person. And so I introduced myself to him and his name was John Shulkin. And he was from a company called Valor in Chicago. And I knew nothing about John. I never heard of John before. I knew nothing about Valor. But over the next couple of hours, he would share with me that they were the first institu institutional investors in Tesla. They're the largest shareholders in SpaceX, just over and over again. But most importantly, they actually run 800 restaurants. So they had a very strong uh, restaurant background. And I was just so taken by this human being, taken by the culture that he shared with me, that I, was, I knew that they were the right partner. And so I flew home to Seattle. I went to the Starbucks Support Center building, took the elevator to the eighth floor, and went to meet with Kevin. And I said, I found, I found our partner. And it's a company called Valor in Chicago. And here we are a year later. Uh, we're now one of the largest venture capital funds focused on food and retail tech. And most importantly, have now made 19 investments in some of the world's leading companies. And for the fifth time in my life, <laughs> I have the chance to say that I have the best job in the world. And I feel so blessed to be able to say that. Wow, that's amazing. And you've, you've had such an incredible career uh, of, of, I'd say, variety. I mean, it really a reflection of you know, being a generalist, but having that superpower of, of passion to start new things. I mean, from college to Microsoft to to uh, to boom boom to, we <laughs> to have cranium. not even whispered the word galazzo yet we, we could well, talk for just... hours <laughs> I miss galazzo I know me too that was so delicious and I I I know that we're running short on time but Richard I was telling back as we were doing our show prep uh the 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 minute video highlighting galazzo um with you and um um I'm totally blanking on your partner uh from the garage Alex, Alex that's right um, well, the, for those who don't know, Galazzo was a sport drink for, it was marketed toward soccer players, football players, yeah. um, but it was appropriate for a lot of different sports. It was a combination of energy plus hydration. hydration. We were ahead of our time. I mean, it was organic. Yeah. Yeah, the ingredients were amazing. It was simple. It was yeah. delicious. And, but I'll never forget, and I told Beck this, and I think I've told you this before, Richard, but I, I'll never forget watching that film and the way that you looked at that product the the passion that you had for that brand that's always just it's like it's like burned in my in my in my brain of just how 
much care and passion you have for whatever it is that you're pursuing. And I think that's always been a lesson for me that even when things are hard, that just reminding yourself of why you started something and going back to that, 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 that passion and desire to grow something. Um, I'll never, I'll never, that clip is like ingrained in my brain forever. I mm -hmm. think <laughs> you did. You looked at the, you looked at the can and you said, I just love this. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I, I do. I, I miss, I miss Galazzo too. Yeah. Um, but it's been, it's been, um, so much fun to listen to all the stories that you've had. Um, you have such a care for people. There's so much empathy. There's so much lessons to be learned. Um, I think throughout this whole, this whole show. And, um, I'm just so incredibly, like I said, at the beginning, I'm so incredibly thankful for, for your passion and your, your, your friendship and encouragement uh, for what we're doing. And, and it's just, it's, it's been fun. The, the, the hugs and the, and the introductions and it's, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's otherworldly. Well, and I think maybe you guys could touch on this for a minute. And maybe this isn't true for you, Richard, but from my perspective, the role of entrepreneur can be very lonely at times. Um, and you've, you've had a partner in many of your endeavors, Richard, and you haven't as much, but you've been able to rely on a community of, of supporters like Richard. But I don't know. There, there are still moments where there have to be, where... You just feel I, alone in it. And so for you to be able to band together and support one another is so critical, right? The fetal position is very familiar to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. And I think that's, that's actually something that the entrepreneurs that we've been working with most recently have commented on. John and I, again, are an amazing team, a great partnership and very complementary skill sets. But one of the things the entrepreneurs have talked talk to me about is founder empathy. And what I see when I, because I know the dark moments, I know those late nights staring at yourself in the bathroom, going, what am I doing? <laughs> I know the sense of responsibility of payroll, all of those things that weigh so heavily as a leader. I've gone, I've had to lay people off and it's the hardest, it's heartbreaking. And so I've gone through all of those and I've also had the highs of receiving awards and the, the accolades of it. I've, I've ridden that roller coaster. And I think that when you have someone who's sitting across the table from you, that's not only a financier and an operating partner, but somebody who really truly understands and the entrepreneur can be vulnerable. And often it is so lonely and it's so, you know, you, you do want to share what's happening and to hold it inside is so destructive. And uh, almost makes it worse. Totally. But if you can get it out and talk about it in both the good times and the bad, then it's almost a sense of release that comes with it. And I, I have been incredibly fortunate. I don't know if I could do it by myself. And one of the, part, the hard parts of Glaza was when it did feel uh, alone. Uh, and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm better as a team. I've always been a team player, always. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've not really played many um, solo sports. And so I've always looked for that sense of companionship and that sense of complementary skill sets. If I was to give any advice to, to folks just in terms of building that team is being very aware of what you're good at and being very, also very aware of where you need to complement your skills. One of the best people I worked with and one of my dearest friends is a guy called Bob Barton, who's my CFO at Cranium. And him and I, we fit like a, a glove. You know, he, he brings everything to the table that I don't have. And I can compliment his skill set. And we were we were pretty invincible at that at that time. It was it was a great a great partnership. But I would the the way that Brian described Cranium, I really would encourage people to think about the teams like that 
even the team that I'm building right now for VSV, I, I, even as I'm recruiting people, I look for kind of an X, Y, and a Z axis. And I'm, I'm looking for generalist skills, uh, and I'm looking for the ability to, to sell, present, and work with the strategics. But then I'm looking for the, the superpower. Like what is the, when I need you to be the data analytics specialist, can you take that shot? Um, I remember I use basketball analogies a lot, although I'm a huge soccer fan, but I re I'm watching the Michael Jordan series, yes. right? Yes, so good. And I remember the game again, the series against Utah. And this, I'm not sure it's in this thing. I saw another thing with Jordan and they got the camera angle. He had the flu, he was sweating, his eyes were bleary and the camera was in the huddle. The camera, was sh the camera shot was up in the huddle and you saw him, they couldn't get past the jazz and you saw him in the huddle just sweating. And he said, fear not, we will win this game. And at the time, the team could not get past the Jazz. It was like they'd get there by one point, and then they'd get another two points. And Steve Kerr was completely cold. He came on, he was completely cold. Jordan was at the top of the key. Everyone thought he was going to go for it. And he dished to Steve Kerr, and Steve Kerr drained the shot, and they won. And I used that, and Jordan knew, and Steve Kerr knew. That was his shot. He shot that shot so many times in his life that when you gave it to him, he just, it was, it was almost automatic. Yeah. And so I, what I've talked to my folks about is when I need you to, when I need that shot, I need to know that you're going to be there with that shot. And so I, I recruit for that X, Y, and Z axis and with that Z axis being that superpower. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I know we're uh, running short on time, but we have a couple questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, what is one belief you hold that will never change? I'm such an optimist. You know, I just believe so strongly the sun will come up tomorrow. I believe so strongly tomorrow will be better than today. And you just got to go through life with that sense of optimism uh, and, and belief. Uh, I believe in love. I believe in a sense of joy. Um, I believe in curiosity. Hug your kids as often as you can. Tell your parents you love them as often as you can. Make your bed in the morning. Do you make your bed in the morning? You know, it's funny you should ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that's important. And I try to do that as often as I can. <laughs> I believe in the human spirit. I really do. I believe in this journey, uh, the joy that it's brought me, the opportunities that it's brought me. Uh, I've talked to my kids a little bit about this. So the story that I just told about the discovery of of uh, VSV and the, the writing the memo suggesting that, you know, I shouldn't be at Starbucks anymore. I was trying to write the fund that took courage, but it was also absolutely the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, serendipity of being in the room with John Shulkin and just that sense of timing. Um, that's luck. But then there's the recognition of this human with such a great value structure, uh, such a great character, and just the lens of that is a very good human being. And I would like to share some of my life with that human being. That was the right thing to do. Uh, the advocacy for the organization to come back and rec to make a recommendation, because in my heart, I felt like that was the right thing to do. And so I believe in doing the right thing. And uh, oftentimes that can result in a sense of self-sacrifice. Sometimes that can be the result of a little bit of luck. But what has happened in my life is in doing the right thing has given me the chance to have a journey that is very special inside my heart. Hmm. 
Well said. What do you think is next for you? Like what, what's something that you want to pursue that you haven't before? Well, this is, this is professionally, this is new for me. Um, I'm recently engaged, now it's two years to, to Amy. We've been together for five years. Um, so I that, didn't know that. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> um, what else is new for me? You know, I'm 56 years old. And so I think about time a lot and how I'm spending time. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, with humans, it comes with age and the onset of decrepitness that you start being much more focused on how you're spending time. Um, but it means that you're more deliberate with how you're spending time. Uh, we, until COVID, we had a pretty heavy travel schedule plan because I'm much more open and willing to explore the world and what the world has to offer. And I hope that's going to come back. Um, but I'm excited. You know, I'm at another chapter in my life where it feels like a new beginning on many aspects of my life. And, uh, I think I feel so fortunate that you feel the sense of enthusiasm and vibrancy. And, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got a couple of good more innings in me and I'm, I'm pretty excited to see where this, where this chapter will be. Uh, so I'm, I'm very optimistic again. We're, dark we're excited too. I yeah. mean, you're, <laughs> I can't wait to watch either. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen, but we know it's going to be good. Yeah. You've got a lot more at bats. I mean, sure. you could sell goldfish again if you wanted to. <laughs> In ending, I'd just like to say uh, what I said at the beginning or when we weren't on the mic. You two are such an inspiration to me, uh, both professionally and personally. The way that you uh, relate to each other, the way that you relate to your kids is such an example for us all. And um, it's inspiring. It's inspiring being your friend. It's inspiring watching your business. And I'm proud. Every time I lift a mere cup, I'm very, very proud because it reminds me of you two and the team that you have there but also the quality of the work that you're doing. And it's a privilege to spend time with you today. Thank you. That's, Thanks. yeah, it's, um, it's, I, I'd, say, I'd say ditto. It's been so great to be friends for, gosh, almost 10 years now. And the, the moments we've shared together and um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's so good to have a, a, a friendship network and a support system of people that understand the journey. Um, so for those of you who are starting something, find those other people who have, uh, been there before you are going alongside starting something with you because it's been it's been so meaningful to be able to pick up the phone and call you and share the real struggles that that you're going through and to know that that person will will truly understand the darkness but also the light uh, that is the entrepreneurial journey. So thank mm -hmm. you for for being our friend and for for encouraging us and uh, for kicking those doors down the the DKs. <laughs> I also I promise I'll always be there. Yeah. I also just love that question. How do you lighten and enlighten? I feel like mm -hmm. anyone can ask that of themselves, you know, how do you, how do you lighten and enlighten the people around you? That's a very, big, very good perspective to have and a question to ask yourself. Yeah, for sure. Well, Richard, thank you so much again for taking time. I um, wish I could hug you. It's not fair. Richard hugs are the Gosh. best hugs. <laughs> They're so good. Soon enough, soon enough, we'll be able to hug. Well, great. We hope you enjoy the beautiful island life, the sunshine. Uh, thank you so much for spending time with us. And um, yeah, it's been so, I'm so excited to watch the next, uh, the next few innings, especially for what you're up to. Totally. Take care of each other. All right. All right. Thanks, Richard. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you on the next episode.